0: Welcome this morning, and um, we're continuing our study through apologetics, which is uh, how to defend our faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we should always be ready to give a defense of the hope that we have within us. So as Christians, we have a responsibility to be able to give an answer when people have a question about why do we have hope. And uh, this morning, we want to look at the thing that we have uh, really is at the center of our hope, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we know that a dead man walked out of the tomb? And that's what we want to look at uh, from the Scriptures, and we want to ultimately recognize that the only only way a person can be convinced of that is not by a a series of proofs, but really by the work of the Holy Spirit. So we simply give the truth to them, and we speak the Gospel, uh, we, we explain the Gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ to them, and then the Spirit is the one that has to do the work. All right, so let me pray. Uh, We'll get started (coughs) after we pray. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the triumphs of your grace. Um, We are are recipients of that grace. We deserved nothing but your full uh, condemnation because of our sin, and we have no right to stand in your presence apart from what Jesus did for us, and that's why it's all of grace. It's It's a gift uh, from you to us. And we see it as that, and we praise you for that, and we live all of our lives in light of that. Um, Our thoughts and our actions, our motives, are shaped by what you have done for us through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand clearly uh, what your word teaches about how we can defend the faith and how we can know for sure uh, that Jesus did rise from the dead. And I pray that you would just uh, continue to shape our minds through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to consider this question at the top of your handout. Why do we believe that a dead man walked out of the tomb? And so we're going to give some kind of practical reasons why we believe them, and then I'll try to tie them all up and, and argue that, that the main reason is that the Spirit of God has given us eyes to see. Um, in other words, these proofs are helpful for, um, for supporting what we already believe. They're not necessarily helpful in proving to an unbeliever that Jesus is alive. And again, the reason for that is because of Romans 8, 7, which says that um, that the natural man is unable to to uh, seek after God and he doesn't even want to do so. So, so an unbeliever uh, needs to have the light of the illumining work of the Spirit uh, turned on effectively. And there are basically eight... Arguments that we'd like to look at this morning. Number one, Jesus is a big deal. Jesus is a big deal. All of Christianity rests upon uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's all about Christ. And that's why Christians make such a big deal about Jesus. That's why we are so exclusive when we talk about Jesus. Um, Because we recognize that Jesus is God. He is the, the very Son of God. And He cannot be replaced or He cannot be surpassed. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. Because He cannot be surpassed, we must be faithful to the end. And that's why Christians are always talking about Jesus. They're talking about the forgiveness that comes through Jesus and that only comes through Jesus and that that, um, only His blood can cover our sins and only He can restore for us a relationship with God. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 12 through 19, because here we see that if the resurrection is true, then it has serious implications for how we live. Chapter 15, would someone read verses 12 through 19?
1: Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... In our preaching of made to faith and also in faith. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because he testified against us that he raised Christ, he did not raise. This is in fact the dead are not raised. Through 19. Okay.
0: Please, yeah. For if the
1: dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins and those also that have fallen asleep in
0: If we have Christ in this life only, we are all men must be city. Okay, so let me draw your attention to uh, verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And then verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching and our faith is in vain. And then verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Again, another... Idea, the same idea is vain, really. It's of no value. And you're still in your sins. And then verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ, and here's the, the key phrase, in this life only, then we of all men are most to be pitied. If, if our only hope is in, in, in this life, what Christ can do for us in this life, then we are to be pitied. That's why the prosperity gospel is such an offense to genuine Christianity. Because the hope is all in this life. It's about what you can do now to better yourself, your health, your, your, your pocketbook, your relationships. It, it talks very little of what will happen in the next life. And that's why Paul says, if we have hoped in this life only, if your best life is now, then you're of all men most to be pitied. How shameful to live a life where Christ can just... Uh, Kind of beautify your present life and not have anything to do with the next. See, our our life uh, is about that we live for the next life as Christians. That's why uh, we can be confident in resurrection of the dead. That all of us will be raised from the dead. We can be confident. Why? Because Christ did raise from the dead. And so it has serious implications on how we live, how we think, how we talk about Jesus, how we talk about everything in life. It affects every thing that we do if Christ has risen from the dead. And obviously the scriptures say that he does and so we take that as fact. Theologically, uh, if this is true that Christ has been raised from the dead, it has also tremendous implications for non-believers, doesn't it? In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So, Anyone else who says I can get to God however I want uh, is either mistaken or or completely fooled. I mean, they, they are uh, living a lie because the scriptures teach us that the only way that we can get to God is through Jesus Christ. We can't get it through there on our own merits, on our own works. God's not going to, to d- uh, determine our value or our relationship with Him on the basis of what we have done but on the basis of our faith in Christ, what Christ has done. So, uh, how we understand the resurrection determines how we answer every other question in life. So that leads to the second point. Uh, Jesus was a historical person or a historical figure. Jesus was a historical figure. I mean, it's really an amazing story just to think of, of Jesus. If you've been watching the show um, uh, The Bible, and then now A.D., The Bible Continues, um, you've seen that it makes for a good cinematic story of Jesus, his life, how he's mistreated, and yet he was doing something behind the scenes. And uh, for the most part, I think the the... TV show has been helpful, the series has been helpful and and mostly true to the Scriptures, but obviously we have to determine everything that we see on there or read in any other book on the basis of what the Scripture says. And these last couple episodes, if you've been following along, are are, um, to me have been disappointing because the point has very little to do with the Gospel and the establishment of the Church, and it more seems to be about uh, turning the world upside down. You know like we we are revolutionaries in that sense that's not really what Christianity is about that's part of it, but that's not the main thing and um certainly they they bring out a lot of the tension that there is with the disciples and um how how difficult it would have been in the days following uh Jesus' death and how much stress and and uh pressure they would have had on them and how people were seeking their lives and so on um, so um that was just a, an aside there, but I, 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 um, we do need to recognize that you know there are countless millions who believe that Jesus lived. In fact, last t- last week we said that that almost everyone agrees that Jesus was a historical person. Uh, the question is, are his claims true about himself? Is he really the Messiah, the Son of God? That's the real question. And uh, so you, almost any other religion that you go to, you ask them about who Jesus is, and they'll tell you, yeah, Jesus was a historical person, Jesus was a prophet, Jesus was a good man, uh, but but the key to Christianity and what the Bible teaches is that Jesus is God. And we, we have to accept that as fact. He's more than histori- a, a historical figure. And that's why we... Uh, we need to look at the, the, the next one here, number three. Jesus is the point of the history of Israel. Okay, so He's more than just a historical person that, hey, we can learn a few things from. He he is the point of the history of Israel. God started making His argument about who Jesus was at the beginning of time. He, he taught uh, He taught Adam and Eve that they needed a Redeemer. There's going to be one of your seed, Eve, who comes and crushes the head of the serpent. He's going to come. That's Genesis 3.15. And then throughout Israel's history, same sort of idea. uh, That Israel was looking always toward a Messiah that God had promised for them. And and God uh, followed through on that promise when Jesus came. He took elaborate lengths uh, for the Jews to create... These great um, types that were set up in the temple and the sacrifices and uh, and so on that all pointed to Jesus, so that when Jesus came, he became the f- fulfillment of all of these of all of these um, symbols that they had seen in the Old Testament. Um, for example, I'll just uh, give you one example in addition to the ones I've already mentioned, but um, the scapegoat in Leviticus sixteen where God declares that one day a year there will be a day of atonement, Yom Yom Kippur, and on that day the people are reminded that the sins of the people must be forgiven annually, that all people are sinful, and they need, again, another sacrifice to cover their sins. But only one kind of sacrifice would be acceptable. And that was a perfect sacrifice, a spotless lamb. And once that sacrifice had been accepted, then God would God would cover over their sin. There were actually two goats that were used. One was a scapegoat, which was the, the the sin of the people would be transferred, effectively or symbolically. I could say we should say not that. Okay, all of a sudden we got a sinful goat. Um, but but symbolically, it was taken. The sin of the people was taken upon the goat, and then he was released out into the wilderness to show that, hey, listen, God has forgotten your sins in the sense that He's not going to treat you as your sins deserve. And that was what was necessary, and that's, that's how Jesus' sacrifice worked for us. He not only was our atonement, which was the one goat sacrifice uh, on the Day of Atonement, but He also was our scapegoat, that He took upon Himself the sin that we deserved and was effectively uh, sent out in the wilderness so that God would remember our sins no more. Now, not in the sense that God forgets anything, but in the sense that He doesn't act according to our sins deserved. That's what the Scriptures mean when it talks about God forgetting or God not remembering. Alright, any questions so far? Comments on Numbers 1-3? through Number 4, Jesus is spoken about by the prophets of Israel. Jesus is spoken about by the prophets of Israel. The Bible contains over 300 prophecies that testify uh, to who Jesus was and what He did, why He came, and so on. And uh, let's just go through a few examples. In Isaiah 9.6, there's this familiar passage for for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government will be on His shoulders and He will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there's a promise that this child would be born. This is, uh, that, that he would be born uh, of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, where? Micah 5.2 tells us where he would be born, right? But you, Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephesah, though you are small among the clans of du- Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. So he would be from Bethlehem. Um, And then perhaps the most instrumental prophecy, let's turn there, Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53. This chapter uh, captures perfectly, I think, the message of Christianity, that Jesus is clearly the fulfillment of this amazing prophecy. And so it would be helpful for us to just read it of uh, a, a good portion of it in full let's start with verse four and we'll go down to verse nine will someone read verses four to nine
1: surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted he, but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities Chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. If he opened not his mouth, he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her church is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall <clears throat> declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land uh, of the living, for his trans For the transgressions of my people was he stricken, and he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich and his death, because he had done no violence, there was any seat in his
0: mouth. All right. So we we didn't look at the first few verses, but there in verse two. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Um, speaking of his, um, his uh, descendancy from the people of Israel, um, that he had no stately form or majesty. There was nothing beautiful in appearance to him, nothing that would attract people naturally to him. Um, but instead, verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. This is clearly a prophecy about the Messiah who would come and suffer and when the disciples and others thought this cannot be true that Jesus, you would die it it doesn't make sense then he had to go back to the Old Testament and show them that the Messiah had to suffer I think that's actually from Luke 24 following his resurrection he had to show them from the Old Testament that yes indeed I do need to suffer in order to, um, to be put in a position of glory suffering first and then glory number five Jesus' claim to be divine are confirmed by his life, teaching, and miracles. Jesus' claimed to be divine are, are um, confirmed by his life, teaching, and miracles. His life was, was uh, remarkable and his claims were incredible. Um, you know, what would God look like if he were among us? Like the old song, you know, what if God were one of us. What what would He look like? Would He look beautiful in appearance? Would He come across as wise, smart, accommodating? Would He tell it to us straight? Would He show us how to know the Father? You know, we don't have to speculate about what it would be like if God came and lived among us, because we know. Because the Scriptures have told us what He was like. Some examples of His teachings are that He taught that we should do unto others as we would have others do unto us, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. Okay, okay, who is our neighbor? Even these people that sometimes we despise like the Good Samaritan. um, uh, But what about when He told us that we should love our enemies in addition to our neighbors? That we should forgive um, and we will be forgiven. So Jesus made some... Some amazing claims about his through his teaching claimed to forgive sin. When, do you remember when the the chief priests were sitting there and the the man was being brought in who was crippled? He was being lowered from the ceiling, and and Jesus says to him, "Man, your sins are forgiven." And their, the Pharisees are thinking in their minds, "Wait a second, how can he forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins, right?" and so he's making an amazing claim there and he said and then the text says because he knew what they were thinking he said which one is harder for me to do to claim to forgive sins or to say get up and walk to this man who has been lame from birth and he said and he answers his own question he says because you think it's harder for me to say get up and walk then I say to you get up and walk and the man actually gets up and walk the point was, listen, you, no one can verify if I forgave the man's sin or not, right? If I just go up to somebody and say, I yeah, forgive your sins. Well, how do you know if, if, if I did or not? You can't verify that. I mean, obviously you have the Scriptures, so you could say, yeah, you can't do that. Only God can do that. Um, and so they were right in saying that only God can forgive sins, but they were wrong in thinking that Jesus couldn't forgive sins because Jesus is God. He was claiming deity. So he's making some amazing claims of authority, but he also uh, he also confirmed his deity, his divinity, the fact that he is God through his miracles. Remember, the Old Testament prophesied that the, that the Messiah would come and he would be able to heal the sick, he would be able to to um, give sight to the blind, he would make the lame walk, he would cast out demons. And Jesus comes along and does all those things. So what does that say about who he might be, right? It, it tells us that he he is actually who he says he is that he is the Messiah, the son of God uh, he had healings with regard to diseases and um, and demon possession and so on, but also he he was able to have power over nature, right feeding the five thousand coming up with bread and fish from effectively nowhere, um, calming the storm, walking on water so In addition to that, bringing dead people back to life like Jairus' daughter and the widow's son and Lazarus, of course. So, we have all these miracles. And then, uh, his claims. Um, For all of his gentleness and meekness, he made some outrageous comments, as I mentioned earlier, the one to forgive sins in Mark 2 and Luke 5. But he also claimed to be uh, uh, above the Mosaic Law. He says... Um, you know, the time to fast is not now. They would say, hey, why aren't your disciples fasting? He said, the time to fast is not now. You have your laws and your rituals, but I do what my Father tells me to do. So he's claiming a higher authority than even the Mosaic Law. He claimed that no one could come to him except through him, except through Jesus. John 14:6. I mentioned that earlier. He claimed that he would rise from the dead. He had told his disciples on multiple occasions, I will suffer I will be mistreated, I will die, but I will rise from the dead on, on the third day. He also claimed to be God. Remember in John chapter 8 where they have this argument about who He is and how He would know Abraham and He says, listen, I, before Abraham was born and then He used the Old Testament covenant name for God which is Yahweh, He says, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. He's claiming something not something small like, you know, I am like God or I am a God. He's saying, I am the God of the universe. I'm the one who is there at creation. And so, because he makes such strong claims about himself, we can't just be passive in how we respond to him. This is from C.S. Lewis. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. Okay, so I'm not sure if you come into contact with people like that or, or um, if you, you've had conversations where... I'm, I'm ready to accept Him as a great moral teacher. Remember I said almost every other religion will accept Him as a great moral teacher. But they won't accept the second claim that He is God. And, and C.S. Lewis is saying, I'm trying to get us away from that because you can't take one and leave the other. I accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't believe that he's God. He's saying, as Lewis goes on to say, this, that's one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said what Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with the man that says he's a poached egg. Never come across that kind of person, but um, either a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. If Jesus made the kinds of claims that he made and he's just a moral teacher and not God, then he's either a lunatic or the devil. And so you must make the choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In other words, we can't just accept him as a great teacher. He's more than that. He's claiming something uh, in line with what no one else has claimed. That I am God. Not that I am a God. I am the God of the universe. So he is either Lord, lunatic, or liar. Those are your choices. This is where that idea comes from. If you've heard that that phrase before, that comes from C.S. Lewis. Um, um, that's from his trile- trilemma conclusion. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm guessing it's a uh, kind of a kind of a side writing, not necessarily from a book probably like an article or something that he would written but I could track that down if you want so no one can do what Jesus did and claim what he claimed unless he were God so let's think about some various explanations for the resurrection here Um, let's see have we moved to number 6 yet Yeah, I, I don't have number six in my handout, but... How else can Jesus' death be explained? That's where we want to move to now. Okay, yeah, I, I had the wrong number on it. That's why I can't find it. Christians believe that what God accomplished in three short days is the final argument that Jesus was God. Okay, it's one thing for Jesus to make the claims that he did, to do the miracles that he did, and to make promises that he would that he would return and so on and then to die it's one thing for a person to do that but for him to come back to life as he promised that he would is a completely different thing and Christianity started exploded not because of the death of a martyr it was because of the resurrection of the Savior that's what empowered the disciples Christianity really if you think about it does not make sense this is what we were looking at First Corinthians 15 it does not make sense without the resurrection if if Christ has not been raised our preaching is in vain our faith is useless our faith is in vain we are still in our sins we are of all men most to be pitied if the resurrection did not happen so it doesn't make sense without the resurrection So so what kind of uh, things were happening around the time of the resurrection. Jesus died, clearly, and he was placed in a tomb. We can talk a lot about this, how the Roman soldiers were responsible to make, for making sure that each of the criminals had died. Uh, it, they, their lives were dependent upon it. If they had brought somebody down from the cross who was still alive, and he somehow came back to life, they would um, they would lose their own life because they failed at their job. And they had seen... Uh, dozens, probably hundreds of crucifixions and they knew when a person was actually dead. Uh, That's why one of the things they would do is they would go around and break the legs of the people who were on the cross so they couldn't push themselves up and get another breath like they needed to. Um, They would break their legs and kind of speed up the process. For Jesus, he had already been dead and so they just pierced him with a sword and that was in keeping with the prophecy from the Old Testament that none, not a bone of his would be broken. So they knew that he was dead, and they placed him in a tomb. Um, the uh, the tomb was supplied by Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he asked spe- special permission from Pilate to be able to do this. Um, in front of the tomb, they placed a large stone uh, to make sure that the the uh, the smells of the grave were kept in and that, especially in this case, they wanted to make sure that, that no one would, um, would steal his body and try to make up some claim. And so this stone was probably between one and two tons, many scholars believe. Guards were also placed in front of the tomb, probably a, a Roman detachment of four to sixteen men. A Roman seal was placed on the tomb, which means some kind of a cord was put around it and then a seal to show that if that seal had been broken, they would know that someone had gotten in there. That was to confirm that this was the Romans. This is the Romans' property effectively right now. No one's allowed around here. And also to warn people from from breaking it. If they broke the seal of the tomb, they would um, they would uh, have to give up their head effectively. So Jesus was actually placed in there in a sealed to- tomb, and yet three days later the tomb was Empty, and this this truth that we find from the scriptures has never been refuted. Uh, the disciples were preaching in the vicinity at this time. People could easily have walked in the tomb, and I, I it, you can imagine that count uh, that the number of people probably did. And so the tomb was empty, and no one refuted it. There's, I mean, th- even when you have the chief priests who didn't want Jesus to be resurrected, he didn't. They didn't want his his. Um, his uh, intrigue and so on to continue. And so they they make up a story, don't they? So here are some uh, potential explanations for what happened there. First, Jesus swooned. John Stott best refutes this He He says, Are we to believe that after the rigors and pains of trial, mockery, flogging, and crucifixion, that Jesus or any man could survive 36 hours in a stone sepulcher with neither warmth nor food nor medical care. So if we understand anything about the Roman beatings that he would have taken uh, and that his body was probably just open uh, just open wounds and very likely birds had been eating at him while he was on the cross and so on. So, I mean, it, there's, there's no fathomable way that he would be able to revive himself uh, in the tomb with no warmth food or medical care Um, should we believe that he could really sufficiently perform a superhuman feat of shifting the boulder which secured the mouth of the tomb and this without disturbing the Roman guard that was outside should we believe that that, that that then weak and sickly and hungry man could appear to the disciples in such a way as to give them the impression that he had vanquished death that he could go on to claim that he had died and risen and, and so, the point of the questioning John Stott's making is, no, we, we there's there's no fathomable way to think that that he somehow didn't die, that he was only kind of in some uh, some kind of a um, what do you call unconscious state for a period of time, and then he, he somehow revived inside and then he recovered completely. it It's just not not possible that it would be uh, that way. He actually was dead. It could be a hallucination, people argue. Um, that these sightings of Jesus were false, that people didn't want to believe that Jesus died, and so they had these visions in their mind of actually seeing Him. Um, both Luke and John emphasize the disciples' own disbelief to help us in this way, that you remember when Jesus came to Thomas, He said, Thomas, do you not believe, even though I told you? You know, do you have to actually see me? And here, here Here's my hands, here's my side... Go ahead, touch them if you'd like to. And Thomas, Thomas, uh, uh, Jesus said in Luke twenty-four, "It it is myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So this is not just a hallucination, uh, or this is not a hallucination of any kind. Um, It's not plausible. Um, Thirdly, the body was stolen." By the Romans or the Jewish authorities, um, this this could not have happened. Uh, in Matthew 28, we we'll read about an idea of how the the tomb was empty. That in in Matthew 28, in fact, let's let's turn there. Matthew 28. See what happens when the um, the authorities find out that Jesus had risen from the dead. Someone read verses 11 to 15 for us.
1: <laughs> we
0: will All right, so there you go. There's an explanation for why people still believe that um, even at the time of Matthew's writing, but, but even to our day, we could say. Um, and it's because... When the chief priest reported to the the uh, when the elders the, uh, reported to the chief priest, uh, he said, "Let's let's make up a story and say that his disciples stole it while the guards were asleep." And they paid the guards to to try to um, circulate that story. So it could not have been stolen. It, it also could not have been stolen by the by the uh, disciples. Remember, there, there's a seal on it. Uh, the, there's a seal on it, and there are these guards there. that They would have to overtake and then move somehow this one to two-ton boulder that would be in front of it. And so uh, the disciples, remember, at this point are reeling. They they don't know what to do because their Messiah has died. They didn't expect that, even though Jesus had warned them and and encouraged them in that way. And so the final explanation, obviously, which is the one that the Scriptures offer, is that Jesus actually was resurrected, that He was literally dead, and He stayed dead for those three days, uh, or, or at least on the third day, He came back to life by the power of God, showing that, that Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice for sin was enough, that, that God accepted that. This is God's way of saying yes, I accept your sacrifice. And now he's risen from the dead. And um, the changes that came after the resurrection also confirm what we know about that. So let's look at those quickly as we conclude here. Number seven the changed lives of the disciples and the changed world. Okay, I I mentioned that 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 TV show kind of highlights the upside down world that was really being affected, the revolution. And we don't want to minimize that and say it's not important, but again, I think at the center of that, the reason I had a problem with it is because the center of it needs to be the gospel and the establishment of the church, which, uh, at least in these last couple episodes, hasn't, uh, hasn't been clear. So, there are changed lives. The disciples go from being distraught to now being willing to die for him. And these disciples actually would give their lives for Jesus. In fact, 11 of the 12 apostles would all die as martyrs, according to the scriptures and history. Uh, 11 of the 12. I think John was the only one that died a natural death. And so why would they give their lives for something that they knew was a lie? People, people may give their lives as a sacrifice for something that they think to be true or they think they know to be true. Right, we have all sorts of religions that are are, are willing to do that to, to lay down their lives for something that they believe to be true. But when they, if they were to know that that was a lie, do you think they'd still do that? You know, you think some of these kamikaze pilots or or um, you know some of these Muslim uh, terrorists would give their lives if they knew that what they had been told their whole lives was was a lie? No, if you told them right before they were about to go out and they actually believed and understood that to be true, they would not give their lives for that. But these disciples knew what was going on and knew it to be true and they were willing to give their lives and so their lives were changed. Additionally, the church grew immeasurably and is still growing. Um, Christianity began following the... the, uh, really established during the time of Christ but really started to explode the church, certainly... Uh, was established following the death of Christ and His resurrection. So Jesus Christ didn't die as a first martyr in a great cause that inflamed the masses. Um, you know His followers at that time, remember, are comparatively few, and the masses, when Jesus was being put up on trial, wanted Him killed. So it wasn't like this was a, a huge problem for the people as much as um, it was for the disciples. His small little group of people probably a hundred or less um, people that were following him at the time of his death and the reason for this growth is, is probably uh, one of the best ways to explain it is from the mouth of the Pharisee Gamaliel when the, the church was starting to spread the, the news of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ was spreading and they were trying to decide what to do with these men and he said in Acts chapter 5 let them go For If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. If it's their own little idea, their their little push towards revolution, then it's going to fail. Just leave them alone. But, if what they're doing is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting God. A very wise thing to say by the Pharisees, the, the Pharisee there, Gamaliel, as he's giving these men... Some advice on how to handle these disciples who are spreading the news of Christ. Additionally, other historical changes, like um, our day of worship. You know, historically the Jews worshipped on what day? The Sabbath day, which was what day? Saturday. Saturday. Okay, and now we worship on Sunday, and we do that for a purpose. It wasn't just kind of oh, you know, this is the way we've always done it, this tradition. Uh, to actually go from one day of the week to another day of the week is significant. And the reason we do it on this day of the week is because it's the day on which Jesus raised was raised from the dead. Uh, and so um, we worship on that day. We are constantly reminded of his resurrection in that way. Uh, secondly, the introduction of the communion. Uh, if Jesus had not been raised, do you think his followers would have instituted something that would have brought back terrible and terrifying memories of Jesus? Right? Their, their last meal with him. Now he's dead. If Jesus hadn't been raised, you think communion would be established? And then uh, various uh, various calendar items that have changed the world as a result of of Jesus. Question? Uh, I think Sunday actually is probably has a Roman origin. There. Uh, I think, from what I remember, uh, the days of the week all come from a Roman calendar. So they would, th- they have their various gods that they follow. But no, I don't think it's, I don't think it's attached in that way. No. Number eight, Jesus has changed lives throughout history, and he is still changing them. So we could say, you know, I know that he lives because he lives within my heart. Right? We we sing a song like that, and. Um, You know, you you have all of these examples throughout history, following the establishment of the church, when people were transformed from uh, from ordinary or or pagan heathen ways of life to to following Christ, being changed. And uh, certainly, we are all we are all an example of that. Those of us who have turned to Christ, Pilgrim's Progress. You know, has the example of, or the picture of, of pilgrim losing his huge pack on his back, which showed that he he's turned from his former way of life and now is following Christ. And so here's here's how what that means for our defense of the faith. Okay, we just kind of work through some of these things. Uh, Some of these are many of the questions that you'll get. Okay, was Jesus really a historical person? Did he do what he said he did? Um, the, what we want to do is continue to put God on the table put Jesus at the center of what we're talking about and then pray for opportunities so we could call it dependent uh, dependent prayer or dependent planning uh, dependent planning means we make simple plans toward, toward doing what God has called us to do but then we also depend on God through prayer that we're saying listen God without you we can do nothing um, our, our efforts on our own our proofs our explanations are invalid on their own. They need your spirit to confirm them on the basis of your word. So keep pointing people back to the scriptures, and um, and that's ultimately what's going to convince them, not our our um, polished explanations. But I would I would recommend when you have people ask these questions, don't just put them away and say, well, you know, the Bible says it's true. You need to accept it. Um, I would go back and 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 uh, do a little bit of research on your own and say, listen, let me, can I get back? That's a really good question that you've asked me about the resurrection and, and I need to give some time to think about that, but I'd like to come back to you with an answer. And that would be, that would be helpful. Um, uh, you, when, when you start to show a person that you're listening to them, that you actually understand where they're coming from, then you can start seeing steps toward... To our, um, towards uh, further concern because if you automatically dismiss everything that they say without well there's no validity of that then then um, you're going to find that they're not going to be willing to listen often to you so any questions or comments? Bill? Uh, I'm, I missed it a few months ago
1: but 500 people right. saw Christ raised from the dead and uh I guess that if five people saw somebody at a place and they actually murdered somebody, they could still get off. But you have five hundred people see the risen Christ and yet people don't believe it. Yeah. I mean just in that small area.
0: Yeah, and he had he had shown himself in Jerusalem and then later to the disciples in Galilee, so way up, you know, two hundred miles north. Um so so he it did in multiple places. And, yeah, the 500 people, I think we know that from 1 Corinthians. Uh, so, yeah, i failed to mention that, but that's good good observation. All right, let's pray. And we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for uh, Jesus Christ and his resurrection and what that means for our lives. Thank you that we can celebrate his life even today and his death for us uh, and what it means for us. And we pray that you would give us a proper reflection and uh, focus as we do so. In Jesus' name, amen.